0: Welcome to Life Science Today, your source for stories, insights, and trends across the life science industry. I'm your host, Dr. Noah Goodson. This week, some statistically significant guidance, seed to acquisition, some bio bucks, and the car tee of the future. The views expressed on life science today are those of the host and guests. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions of any organizations with which they are affiliated. Last week, the FDA released critical and long-awaited guidance on assessing the efficacy of multiple endpoints in clinical trials. To break this down into the simplest terms, you have to first understand that clinical trials are built to test outcomes of a therapy or medical device's impact, called endpoints. These are divided into primary endpoints, the main thing a study wants to assess, and secondary endpoints, other things that might also be relevant to the study. To address these endpoints, a range of validated mechanisms must be utilized within a study. For example, if a condition impacts your heart health and function by changing your cholesterol levels, a drug targeting this would need to show via a blood test that your cholesterol levels were decreased and using some sort of heart monitoring that your heart health improved as a result. These might be primary endpoints, with secondary endpoints being weight loss or improved blood pressure. Okay, so that's fairly simple on the surface, except it's completely not simple below the surface. First. Many conditions lack clear measures of clinically effective or relevant endpoints. Even if you ignore rare diseases and think of something that's quite common like Alzheimer's, there are actually lots of tests that indicate cognitive decline, but the disease impacts lots of areas of the brain health, and a drug may help some of those areas, say, memory of events, but not others, like word recall. Additionally, some tests might have overlapping testing criteria. Think two memory tests that test related concepts. When you start layering complex methods together to determine if a drug is effective, it can be challenging, not just at designing the right methods and testing them, but also in a statistically analyzing them in a way that prevents making errors. Now, the guidance starts out with some pretty pragmatic statistical approaches. It's largely statistics 101, but for the sake of the show, I won't go too far into the details. The important piece here is that the FDA is laying out guidance that impacts the life science industry about how statistics, population size calculations, multiple component endpoints, multiple endpoints, and more should be pre-accounted for in a statistical plan. The point for those building and conducting clinical trials is that you need to have a specific strategy for how you're going to be assessing data and account for two critical components in that statistical plan. Number one, how you're going to avoid type one errors which is when you think the drug works, but it doesn't. And number two, how you can account for type 1 errors when there are multiple endpoints, which may compound the probability of making a type 1 error. Like many guidances from the FDA, there's little dogma beyond mentioning commonly accepted statistical thresholds. The real concern here is that as sponsors are preparing their studies and coming to the FDA, there's agreement upfront about what success looks like and how that is being measured to prevent surprises and lengthy contentious determinations. See Biogen's Adahelm, for example. Practically, this does mean studies with complex multiple endpoints, which are growing in frequency with the expansion of precision medicine and rare disease therapies, that For those studies, additional efforts may be required in the protocol statistical analysis plan to account for type 1 error avoidance during data analysis, and the FDA is signaling you're going to need to account for this up front before you run your trial, not just on the back-end calculations. AbbVie has acquired DJS antibodies for $255 million in cash. The UK based biotechnology company is a small early stage pipeline of therapies, with their lead candidate targeting LPAR1 to treat pulmonary idiopathic fibrosis. The underlying value here is that DJS appears to have developed a strategy for targeting complex transmembrane proteins using their heptad platform. They've generated a seemingly effective means of targeting G protein coupled receptors using antibodies. This combination of immunology and antibody design could be a huge asset as AbbVie looks down the pipeline at the future of targeted immune therapies. For DJS, coming off a $6 million seed round just under two years ago, this is a massive ROI. Time will tell how AbbVie uses this technology and the pipeline going forward. Roche has signed a licensing agreement worth up to $950 million with the Austrian company Hukipa Pharma to license and develop their therapy, HB700, targeting crass mutated cancers. Like many of these deals in the past, the future numbers are huge, but the initial payment is just $25 million. Still, the vote of confidence certainly won't hurt Hukipa. For Roche's part, they appear to be willing to take another bet on crass-related conditions. Now, this has long proven a challenging target in oncology, so whether Hukipa has cracked that nut or not remains to be seen. For Roche, this all stacks up to a relatively small early bet on a phase one oncology asset. Very business as usual. Saverna Therapeutics has gone to the FDA with an IND application to test the efficacy and tolerability of their CAR-T therapy for lupus nephritis, KYV-101. We don't normally cover INDs on the show because there are quite frankly a lot of them that don't ever amount to much, but this particular instance is well worth considering for a variety of reasons. Leveraging the CAR-T approach to treat autoimmune diseases has been under investigation for a while. But just a few weeks ago in early October, a separate group out of Germany published in Nature Medicine, a study treating a different form of lupus, systemic lupus erythematosus, with an anti-CD19 CAR-T therapy. The small study in five participants caused complete remission of SLE symptoms on a disease activity scale at three months, and that was maintained drug-free for up to 12 months. That, by the way, is complete remission of a poorly treatable, life-threatening disease with a single therapeutic dose that was well-tolerated. Kyverna is heading in a slightly different direction, targeting lupus nephritis, which specifically impacts the kidneys, but based on the published data by this other group, I'm relatively excited about the potential here. Given I'm drawing crude analogies to non-identical therapies, but on the backs of raising $85 million Series B and crafting partnerships with Intellia Therapeutics, Back in January, this is more movement in a positive direction for Kyverna. And I'm excited to see their long term data readout for the potential expanded use of CAR T therapies in autoimmune diseases. <laughs> Thanks for joining me for Life Science Today, your source for stories, insights, and trends across the life science industry. Learn more on Life Podcast.com. And if you like what you hear, please tell a friend. Once again, I'm Dr. Noah Goodson. I'll see you next week.